Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. <laughs> no, Gavin. I don't think you could win on The Bachelor. I don't think you could win the Great British Bake Off. I've had your biscuits. They're terrible. Tastes like cookies. The following podcast contains... Tobacco, swear words, and... Yes, alcohol. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you put a cut-rate Ted Bundy as a contestant on your dating show, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 299, the Good Love is Hard to Find edition of the show, where we talk about why you really should screen the contestants on your game shows. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Mating Game, because come on, why be coy? Traditional matchmaking game shows like to pretend their shows aren't about people fucking, but we here at the Mating Game say the hell with that. Instead of puns, innuendo, and double entendre, our questions focus on whether or not our questions want to fuck and fuck well. Do they like butt stuff into spanking? Or would they like to have a powerful woman strap on a 12-inch rubber cock and ram it up inside them until they squeal? That's the kind of thing your partner needs to know. The mating game. We know you're going to bone, so why not talk about it on the show? Girls, tell me where specifically is the weirdest place that you personally, girls, have ever gotten the urge to make whoopee? Um. <laughs> In the... I know you young folks today like to think your shows are risque or avant-garde, what with your bachelors and bachelorettes and paradises or your 90-day fiancés or aspiring actors and models co- compete to win the affection of talent agents and TV producers or fat social media influencer deals. Boring. Back in the day, we children were entertained in the late afternoon by real people talking about their sex lives for viable cash and prizes, not trying to break into Hollywood. On shows like The Newlywed Game, actual human beings talked about their real-life kinks, and it was fucking educational. How the hell was I ever going to learn about butt sex? From my parents? Not gonna happen! No, not gonna happen! (laughs) No, these people were on this show and saying these things out of pure desires to win a dinette set, not fame and fortune. Okay, technically... Some of them might have been aspiring actors on at least one of the shows. The Dating Game in particular featured a lot of future famouses over the years. Yeah, The Dating Game, if you've never seen it, which you have, was a profoundly silly show, even for its time. Conceived by Chuck Barris, it premiered on ABC in 1965 based on a simple premise. Get a bunch of young, attractive people on stage, ask them risque questions, then set two of them up on a date. You're right. It was silly. It was very, very silly. 
The contestants, usually three bachelors hidden by a screen from a bachelorette who would ask them a series of questions. Of course, you know the rules of the game. They're very simple. Ask anything you like except their name, age, occupation, or income. And we'll start, as usual, with a hello. And those questions would invariably be worded in a way as to be risque enough that they could get past the censors at the time and almost certainly told to the contestants ahead of time so they could come up with suitably spicy answers. At the end of the episode, the Bachelorette would pick one of the Bachelors for an all-expense-paid date by one of the show sponsors, and Jim Lang and the lucky couple would blow a kiss to the viewers as the credits ran. And the show went for nearly a decade in its original form. A few more years after that in syndication, and it spawned copycats all around the world. All in all, the dating game was one of the most successful and influential games of its generation, and without the dating game, you wouldn't have no bachelor in prison or whatever the fuck is running now. And over the years, such future luminaries such as Arnold Schwarzenegger, Farrah Fawcett, John Ritter, Sally Field, Lindsay Wagner, Steve Martin, Suzanne Somers, and Tom Selleck. Yeah, Magnum P.I. was on the dating game. Now, now that I think about it, even pre-mustache, which this was, Tom wasn't having any problems getting pussy. It was about the exposure, so what the fuck do I know? Not every person appearing on those kind of shows was there as a stepping stone for Hollywood careers. A few people even found love. According to Chuck Bears' autobiography, quote, the second marriage involved a newspaper reporter who was unduly hard on Chuck Barris and his shows. Knowing he was going to get his ass kicked by this reporter, Barris had the bright idea, bright idea of inviting the man to be on to be on as a contestant on the show, having his pick of three lovely ladies on the other side of the curtain. Unknown to the reporter, he was being set up. The three ladies were not typical models, but were call girls specifically selected for this episode. But unknown to Barris, on the trip the couple won, they completely hit it off and decided to get married. The marriage was held at the reporter's house with a maid of honor being a 19-year-old street prostitute named Cherry Garcia, who was voted Miss Hollywood Call Girl of 1968. This woman was so dedicated to her job that she had her teeth removed so she could be voted Best Head of 1969. That is so romantic. Now, I don't know if any of that happened. Chuck Barris is not the most reliable narrator regarding his life because in that same book, Chuck Barris, the guy behind the gong show, also claimed to be a CIA assassin. Did he? The CIA, of course, categorically denied this, but then they would, wouldn't they? But, you know, I think you gotta kind of think of old Chuck as a bit of a storyteller. If, however... It was true that he was indeed a CIA assassin. It would mean that Chuck Barris was not the only mass murderer associated with the dating game. Oh, nice segue. Because in 1978, a dude by the name of Rod was introduced by Jim Lang as... So number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. As the camera pans to Rodney, we see a handsome 70s man, complete with his wide collars, flowing long hair, and big white teeth. He's got a ready smile and just oozes confidence as energy. And you can tell instantly that Rodney Alcala is in it to win it. 
As the questions progress, Rodney answers with just the right mix of mild naughtiness and winning charm that definitely interests our bachelorette, Cheryl Bradshaw. So it's not a surprise that when it comes time to choose, she goes with bachelor number one. Welcome back to the dating game. And Cheryl, we have reached the moment of truth, as we call it. You heard from the bachelors. You got some great dramatic presentations some good answers. But now I'm going to ask you a question. Will that date be bachelor number one, bachelor number two, or bachelor number three, who gets the dates? Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one, bachelor number one, all right. Well, there they go. However, you did leave one remaining, and this is your date, and I want to tell you something about him, Cheryl. He's a skydiver, so he's got a lot of nerve. He's into motorcycling. He's also a fine photographer. Say hello to Rodney Alcala. Rodney, come on and say hello. As the two were left alone after taping to get to know one another, Bradshaw picked up on something the cameras did not. And she pulled one of the producers aside and told them in a no uncertain terms that she was did not care about the prizes and she would not be going on her date with Rodney. She would later go on to describe him as creepy to the media for reasons which I'm about to make abundantly clear. Perhaps Cheryl found Rodney creepy because he was in the middle of a cross-country rape and murder spree when the episode was recorded. That certainly could be the reason. So... Let's get to know the real Bachelor number one. Rodney James Alcala, born Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor in San Antonio, Texas, 1943, was abandoned by his father at age eight, and his mother moved the family to sunny Los Angeles, California in 1954. In 1961, Rodney enlisted in the U.S. Army as a supply clerk, but didn't last long by go and went AWOL in 1964 and hitchhiked his way back from the East Coast to his mother's house in Los Angeles. Diagnosed by the Army shrinks with antisocial personality disorder, he was discharged from the Army on a medical at the end of that year. After leaving the Army, Rodney enrolled in the University of California, Los Angeles, and graduated with a fine arts degree in 1968. His passion? Photography? Indeed. I will never understand why so many serial killers portrayed themselves as photographers. William Bradford, Harvey Glattman, Dennis Rader, Jeffrey Dahmer, even Leonard Lake. They all call themselves photographers as a means to gain access to their victims. At least Alcala had the, went to the trouble to get a degree in it. And I took a good look at some of his work and it was, uh, it was, uh... It's just that it's also mediocre, so unimpressive. I mean, maybe his class portfolio was better, but most of what I saw was generic and uninspired. Well, not uninspiring for Rodney, because it was almost entirely young women and girls. And as we'll soon see, Rodney found them very inspiring. The year he graduated, Rodney attempted his first kill. From a Yahoo News article in 2010, quote, he uh, raped, assaulted, and almost killed an eight-year-old girl, Tolly S., as the young girl was called by the media. As the young girl was called by the media... Was walking to school was when an eyewitness saw Alcala lure the child into his car. The witness tailed Alcala to his apartment and promptly called the police. By the by the time the first officers responded to the call, Alcala had already bludgeoned the girl with a pipe and raped her. He eluded authorities by sneaking out of the back door. Police found the victim severely wounded and surrounded by photography equipment. It's likely that Alcala was in the process of documenting his heinous act just before the officers arrived. He fled to New York soon after. Unquote. In New York City, he lived under the alias of John Berger and attended New York University, where he took classes with such notables as Roman Polanski, 
a guy who was also inspired by young girls, if you know what I mean. In 1971, he raped and murdered a young flight attendant by the name of Cornelia Crilly. Alcala decided to lay low for a while after that and got himself a job teaching photography in none other than... New Hampshire? In case you couldn't guess, his job was teaching photography at a camp for teen girls. Uh, Of course it was. One afternoon, a couple of Rodney's students happened to come across a wall of FBI's most wanted posters in the store in town, and there on the poster was the spitting image of their popular photography teacher, John Berger, only under the name of Rodney Alcala. The police in L.A. had quickly figured out who the monster behind the, uh, the abduction and rape of little Talia, and the crime was heinous enough to vault Rod onto the most wanted list. It wasn't long afterwards when the local police showed up at the camp and picked up John Berger, quickly confirming via fingerprints his true identity as Rodney Alcala. When he got back to California, he was quickly tried and convicted for the assault. But his sentence was light as the victim family has left town to spare their daughter the stress of the trial, and he was only jailed on lesser charges, and then he did what serial killers always seem to do, morph themselves into model prisoners. How do they do that? Well, in Rodney's case, he read a bunch of books and put on a great act of remorse and rolling in therapy programs and convinced the prison parole board that he had changed. He hasn't changed. No. Indeed, he had not. Since he was picked up two months after his release for assaulting a 13-year-old girl he had picked up on her way to school and then did another two years in jail before being released yet again. Doing a brief prison sentence after his second release, again claiming he was now totally reformed, Rodney was tired of Los Angeles and yearned to see the Big Apple again, so he managed to convince his parole officer to allow him to travel back to New York City. You have got to be shitting me. Nope. Returning to New York in the middle of the summer of Sam, he picked up his old alias as John Berger and met a young woman by the name of Eileen Hover. As you might have guessed... He murdered her. Again, from Yahoo News, quote, She was last seen in her Manhattan apartment on July 15th, 1977. Her address book showed that she had an appointment with a John Berger that day. Alcala fled to Los Angeles, and detectives tracked him back to L.A. and questioned him. Hover's body had not yet been discovered, and there was no conclusive evidence connecting him to the crime scene, so he was released. Hover's body was later found on the Rockefeller State in New York. Back in L.A., Rodney found himself keeping busy. And Los Angeles was keeping busy chasing down the hillside stranglers. So Rodney was able to do what he did without drawing much attention to himself. What did he do? Well, in 1977, he kidnapped, raped, mutilated, and murdered an 18-year-old girl by the name of Joe Balcarm and dumped her body near Marlon Brando's home in the Hollywood Hills. Then he broke into a 27-year-old nurse's home by the name of Georgia Wickstead, bludgeoned her in the head with a hammer, strangled her to death, and sexually mutilated her corpse. The police more or less attributed both of these crimes to the Hillside Stranglers, but they did actually question Rodney about the crimes as part of their search for the aforementioned Hillside Stranglers. Now, Rodney wasn't one of the Stranglers, of course, but they did find weed in his home, and he went briefly back to jail. But don't worry, he was out in time for his appearance on the dating game. After being rejected by his dating game date, he killed 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb and left her body posed in the kneeling position with her hands behind her back, which is a preferred method of displaying his kills. Jesus, Dave. Look, I just report them. I don't commit them, people. In February of 1979, he picked up a 15-year-old hitchhiker and took her out to a remote park where he almost certainly would have murdered her if a park ranger had not smelled them smoking weed and report and approached the pair, and the girl frantically told the ranger she was being kidnapped. Alcala, a convicted sex offender, was naturally released on bail pending trial for this and thus was able to find the time to murder Jill Parento in her home. 
What the fuck, man? I don't know, people. Just blame the 70s. It's just how it was back then. And he would also find the time to strike at least once more. From Wikipedia, quote, Robin Samso, a 12-year-old girl from Huntington Beach, California, disappeared somewhere between the beach and her ballet class on June 20th, 1979. Her decomposing body was found 12 days later in the Los Angeles foothills. Samso's friends told police that a stranger had approached them on the beach, asking to take their pictures. Detectives circulated a sketch of the photographer, and Alcala's parole officer recognized him. During a search of Alcala's mother's house in Monterey Park, police found a rental receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, and in the locker, they found Samso's earrings, unquote. According to the Wondery podcast that I listened to, one detective claims during the investigation into Samso's death, he recognized Alcala as the person in the sketch being circulated of the suspects while watching, you guessed it, the dating game. Get the fuck out my face with that shit. I couldn't confirm that in any other source documents, but that is definitely what the detective told the podcasters. Either way... Rodney Alcala was finally locked up for the murder of Robin Samso, facing serious charges. <laughs> of course, it wouldn't be that easy. Again, from Yahoo News, quote, Alcala was found guilty of Rodin Samso's abduction and murder twice. Both times the convictions were overturned. The first occurred in 1984 when the California Supreme Court ruled that the jury should not have been privy to the defendant's prior convictions. There was also suspicion of perjury by two of the witnesses who testified against Alcala. The second overturning took place in 2001 when the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the defense's claim that witness Dana Kroppa's statements were improperly handled by the prosecution, unquote. Alcala's trials were shit shows, and he was lucky to be convicted at all. The witness, Diana Crappa, who could put Alcala with Samso the night she disappeared, recanted her story multiple times over the course of the investigation and testified only extremely reluctantly at the trial. When that verdict was overturned and over on appeal, she didn't testify at all in the second one, having her original testimony read into the record in lieu of appearing. Other witnesses who described him as approaching them couldn't specifically say Samso left with Alcala, so that left a hole in the case big enough to drive a fucking truck through. And if it weren't for the discovery of the storage locker, Alcala rented in Seattle with multiple items related to still unknown victims and the pair of earrings belonging to Samso kept by Alcala as a trophy, he probably would have walked in the first trial. As it was, it opened up reasonable grounds for appeals, which led to a second and yes, third trials. In 2001, Alcala won an appeal overturning his death sentence claiming ineffective counsel which set the stage for yet at the third trial. But this trial was going to be much, much worse for Rodney than just the Samso murder. Because now... We also have a DNA match. For Charlotte Lamb, Jill Parenteau, Georgia Wickstead, and Jill Barcombe. Alcala's third trial would be for all five murders, with the death penalty very much on the table. So naturally, Rodney Alcala decided to represent himself. Of course it did. From CrimeMagazine.com, quote, By the time the trial opened on February 2nd, 2010, Rodney Alcala had decided to act as his own attorney. No longer the handsome and seemingly debonair young man who appeared on the dating game, the lean-faced Alcala sported wavy gray hair flowing past his shoulders and a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. As he would throughout the trial, Alcala essentially ignored the charges of murdering the four adult women and focused on the Samso murder charge, unquote. And pod friends, this was one weird fucking trial. Obsessed by the Samso case, he predicated his entire defense on him having his ears pierced 
1978, showing footage from his appearance on the dating game to prove that he wore an earring even though his hair covered his ears entirely while he was on camera. Then he further called the people on the game with him to testify they saw him wearing earrings, which they could not do because, again, it was 40 years ago and he had long hair. And then Rodney Alcala called Rodney Alcala to the stand to testify. Now, usually when a defendant is their own lawyer, their assistant counsel will conduct the questioning if they are stupid enough to testify. Not this time. Alcala used a different voice, a deeper voice, when asking himself the question, referring to himself in the third person, and then answered the questions using his normal voice. He aggressively questioned Samso's mother, who we learned in the Wondery podcast, carried a gun to court every day in the first trial in case he was quitted. He questioned her aggressively about the earrings linking Samso to him, found in his trophy box, and I swear I'm not making this up, during at one point in his trial, he played this song. I wanna kill. I mean, I wanna, I wanna kill. Kill. I want, I want to see, I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead, burnt bodies. I mean, kill. 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 Which was somehow supposed to convince the jury that it wasn't him that was the murderous bastard out for blood, but the prosecutors for the state of California. As you might have guessed by now, Rodney Alcala was convicted on all counts and sentenced to death. Again, it only took the jury a couple of hours. And if you've been listening closely, you know the answer to this. But do you know when all of this concluded? When all of these sentences and trials were finally wrapped up for murders that occurred in the 1970s? Way, way back in the 1980s. <laughs> no, 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 no. This was in 2010. In 2013, Alcala pled guilty to the New York murders of Cornelia Crilly and Eileen Hove and was given an additional 25 years to life. And all told, he's convicted of seven murders along with a slew of rapes, kidnappings, and other adjacent crimes. He's suspected of at least three more murders in Washington State, Wyoming, and San Francisco. And he currently resides in California's Corcoran State Prison on death row, where he will almost certainly die of old age before he is executed because he's 77 years old and California isn't really executing people anymore. It is almost certain that Rodney Alcala killed many more people than just the 10 he is convicted or suspected of. of. Remember that storage locker Rodney rented up in Seattle that eventually led to his conviction? Police at the time thought it was a bit strange that a dude living in L.A. would go all the way to Seattle to rent a storage locker, and they checked. You actually could rent a storage locker in Los Angeles at the time. Also in that storage locker were over a thousand photographs taken by Alcala, over 900 of them sexually explicit photos, and most of them were of children and young women. None of them matched any of his known victims, but cops had a hunch that these photos were there for a reason. The most likely explanation was that some of them included other victims, certainly not all of them, but some of them, and Rodney didn't have time to sort them out. Speaking as a photographer, the good kind, not the rapey murdery kind, I have tens of thousands of digital images, again, the good kind, not the sexually explicit child porn murder kind. If you play a drop here, Gavin, I'm coming back in the booth. And it would take weeks to sort through them on a computer to find specific ones. And I'm damn sure Alcala hid them because some of them were people he killed. 
Police have published some of the images for people to look through to see if they recognize anyone in 2016. At least one murder victim was identified, Christine Thornton of Wyoming. Though no direct evidence links Alcala to her death, he's been charged with her murder, but he's not going to stand trial because of illness and age and all the COVID shit. I'll put a link in the show notes to look through them. You'll see his talent photography or lack thereof, and maybe somebody was murdered. Did you know that was murdered? Who knows? All told... People think that Alcala may have killed anywhere from 30 to 50 women and children during his active years, and that total might be as high as 100. Though, Rodney personally refuses to discuss any of that. What a dick. So why talk about all of this now? Well, unknowns to me, when I picked this topic, ABC has actually ran a special on it on January 7th of this year. But uh, we were all a little distracted at the time, so I had no idea that was actually on television. Mostly I picked it because it fits nicely in a little mini theme and it's a fascinating story. And also, I don't think kids today know about things like it from this story. And they could learn things from it, what with their apps and bachelorettes in space. You gotta vet your potential dates, people. The dating game didn't, and look what almost happened. Also, photographers. If a dude tells you he's a photographer, ask to see his portfolio. It's 2021. He's got one online. Make sure it isn't full of little kids and young women. And ask some hard fucking questions right then and there if it is. Maybe report it to the police. I could tell you my portfolio was clean, but then none of you are dating me. That's probably for the best for both of us because chances are sometime on our date, I'm going to start doing a story about some 1970s game shows or serial killers, perhaps both, and that's going to make things a little creepy for you. Better to listen to this podcast. That way I can commoditize your interest and creep you out instead of having to pay for your drinks after you've stormed off after I creeped you out. You know who you can trust in 2021? Podcasters. There are no creepy people at all in podcasting. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Episode 299 is in the can, and we're ready to turn the page on 300. Fuck me. We've been doing this thing for a long damn time. 2015 until now, we have seen some shit in that times, my friend, and here we are talking about a 70s game show and the criminals who loved on them. Took a long time for me to get to do the shows I would wanted to do, but now I truly feel as though I can do them. And I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy. Speaking of being happy, rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast. It helps others find the show, listen to the show, and experience the opposite of what they consider happiness. Follow the show on the socials at the Hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook for more of my manic thoughts that I like to tell people are my happy place. The show is on Patreon at What The Hell Podcast. For just a buck, you get every episode ad-free and early. And for a few dollars more, there's some cool-ass swag that we will get around to making eventually. All of the shows from 2015 through today can be found at whatthehellpodcast.com. And we are a proud, 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 proud member of the Celtic Kings Podcast Network, where Nickelodeon stars from the 90s and 70s murderers mix to create something that is actually pretty disturbing, really. So, for me, Dave, if I were an order at the bar, what kind of order would I be? I would say, that's easy, it's a shot of Jameson, it's affordable, goes down easy, and is the favorite of most bartenders. Bledsoe, producer, if I were a fruit, what kind of fruit would I be? Easy, a banana, because I have appeal. Gavin, and all the fictional bachelors on this show, we want to say, good love is hard to find. 
but maybe don't go on dating game shows because that never works out well for anyone. We'll see you all next week for episode 300. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.